0: I grew up moving between Australia and China, where I lived for eight years as a child and adolescent. With my Japanese mother and my Australian father, a diplomat, we traveled a lot. Ever since I was a child, I've loved exploring new cultures and I've loved tasting my way through a new place to get to know it. This, I think, was the start of understanding how food can tell a story. Whenever I begin a cookbook or even just one recipe, I start by thinking about how a dish has a story to tell. Without the story, the why, the what, and the how behind a recipe, what is left? Stripping the recipe of its context to me does not feel right, both as a writer and as a reader. I want to know why these ingredients are together. I want to hear the reason behind the name, the history, the traditions behind the dish. Do you eat this for a special day of the year? Is it celebrated in a particular way? Is it a family recipe? And what makes it a family recipe? My 10 year old blog and my very first cookbook Florentine both came about because I realized that there were no cookbooks or even food articles about Florentine cuisine in English. Many of the stories behind the dishes were simply unknown at the time and not even Florentines talked about or knew them anymore. Finding the food stories for my second cookbook, Aquacotta, which is about the cuisine of the Maremma, was basically like searching for a needle in a haystack. The first thing I did when I moved to Porto Ercole on Monte Argentario in southern Tuscany was go to the bookshop in town and ask for a book of the local cuisine. I was hoping to find something on Cucina Maremmana, or if I was lucky, the cuisine of Monte Argentario. The shopkeeper handed me a book with the title Cucina Italiana. These recipes were so hard to track down, almost forgotten, and I wanted to document them in case anyone like me who had fallen in love with this corner of land and sea was curious about knowing these stories before they were completely lost. Already, it's very hard to taste any of these dishes in restaurants or this part of the coast, which is dominated by the same menus that you'll probably find along the 7,500 kilometres of Italy's coastline, things like fritto misto and pasta lo scoglio, instead of calamari and fungi, or octopus with chestnuts. When it came to writing Tortellini at Midnight, I wanted to capture stories inspired by family recipes, interviewing the most elderly family members about their cherished food memories and how they remembered the recipes of the family members that I'd never had the chance to meet before all of those stories were lost too. This book led me to both ends of Italy, to Turin and to Taranto, searching for recipes that connected the dots to the family tree, now in Tuscany. Writing and reading stories around food is something that I have always enjoyed, even before becoming a food writer. I believe this started because I was a voracious reader as a child. Later I read my mother's food magazines like novels, and I even loved novels that had food as a central theme. Then I discovered some food writing that wasn't quite a cookbook, but wasn't just a story. It combined both, and it was an autobiography on top of it. It was the Alice B. Toklas cookbook, which I found in a second-hand bookshop in Sydney. And as I read about Alice and her partner, Gertrude Stein, and what was on their table in wartime France, I was immediately hooked. Some of the most influential and inspiring food writers for me, I think, have a way that turns a recipe into so much more than just a recipe. These are writers who have the ability to transport you while also giving you instructions on how to make soup or ideas for what to cook for dinner. I'm talking about writers such as Elizabeth David, Patience Gray, MFK Fisher, and Laurie Colwyn. The first three women are writers who very often wrote about places they were travelling in or living in that were not their home country, like myself while Laurie Colwyn could write about anything in her fridge and find a story to tell. Some contemporary writers whose work I love for their storytelling include Olia Hercules, whose Summer Kitchen's book about Ukrainian cuisine is one of my favourite cookbooks, and journalist Carolyn Eden's Black Sea, which shows you how journalism and food writing can be intertwined so well. I also love Rachel Roddy's column at The Guardian. Much like Colwyn, she can write about anything that is happening at home, even the most mundane thing, and turn you immediately into the kitchen to go and make it. Learning how to find a story to tell was something that came about for me, I think because of a natural love of and curiosity for history. Before being a food writer, I studied to become an art restorer, and I like to think that the way I research and piece back together a recipe is a little bit like restoring an old book or an antique print. Staying true to the original, trying to repair the broken or lost information, and then tidying it all up. A big part of doing that is simply through every possible avenue of research that I can find. Who can I talk to about this recipe? Is there a custodian of the recipe that I can reach out to? A chef, an elderly person, a family member, a butcher? What books can I read if it has already been written about? And also, where can I taste it? Is there a trattoria, a bar, a pastry shop, a market stall, or someone's home where I can try this recipe? Just doing this research can already give you a story to tell. You can talk about the place where you tasted something or the person who you learned the recipe from, whether from a cookbook, virtually or in person. There was an old woman Elena Donati, who we met at a fruit stand on the Via Aurelia, just outside of Capalbio, while we were coming back from the beach. She had been a cook for 40 years at a school, I believe, and she recounted to me with great detail and precision the recipes for Tortelli Maremani and many others. I didn't even have a pencil and paper to write it all down, but I remembered her advice and I compared the recipes she told me about the ones that I'd tasted in in the Maremma at Sagre, which are the food festivals, and in Trattoria. And I compared it, too, to things that I'd read, like in Paolo Petroni's Il Grande Libro della Vera Cucina Toscana, as well as family um, family recipes, friends' recipes. And I cooked them over and over again to get them right. I wanted to read you a little excerpt um, from the book. This is uh, has been edited now in Aquacotta, but this is how I originally added Elena's story to the book. One extremely hot summer's day, while taking some friends out to visit nearby Capalbio, we spotted a roadside fruit and vegetable stall. Go there, was the unanimous cry from the back of the hot car. We were greeted with a small paradise. Ice-cold, lengthwise quarters of watermelon, bunches of fresh basil, baskets of purple and yellow plums, round and lavender-striped eggplants, fragrant rock melon, traffic light coloured peppers, and cucumbers twisted in all manner, manner of shapes. We filled a bag to the brim. After a bit of chit-chat with the shopkeeper, Gianni, on what to do with serpent beans, he decided the best thing to do was to introduce us to his neighbour, Elena Donati, an elderly but sprightly woman who had been for her most of her working life a cook in Capalbio. She was generous with her advice, let aquacotta cook piano, piano, slowly, slowly. That goes for cinghiale, too, while bore. The faro soup is good, cold with a drizzle of olive oil. And my favourite was, buy yourself a big black pan. She meant a cast iron one. I can't tell you if these dishes will come out as well with a non-stick pan, but in a cast iron pan, they're wonderful, she said. The recipe that I have immortalised in my memory from that moment is her recipe for wild boar, cinghiale, in pieces, with the bone, of course, as it's more flavorful. Don't marinate it, she said, referring to the common practice that everyone's nana has always advocated of marinating game in red wine for 24 hours before cooking it to remove the wildness of the meat. It actually disguises the true flavour. Besides, says Elena. The wild boars today aren't like the ones they once were. Lots of bay leaf, she continues. Lots of rosemary, whole. A pinch of chili. Not everyone likes it, but it's good. She says it in a way that means that the chili really belongs there. And brown the meat. Brown it really well. Add a splash of vinegar, and when that evaporates, add vino nero. Red wine. And then tomatoes broken up with your hands. She gestures with her hands as if holding them above a pan and I'm imagining the feel of peeled tomatoes being squashed between my fingers. And cook it piano piano. Some recipes I think are easier than others to research and some recipes are easier than others to tell stories about. But one thing I think is important to remember is to give a place to the recipes that you think might be unpopular. You know that no one will make them, but that they have a story that are a vital piece of the puzzle. I know that no one in Australia, for example, is probably going to make the panini a from my book Florentine because they live somewhere where it's virtually impossible to find lampredotto. I know. I went to every good butcher in Melbourne looking for it speaking to the butchers and trying to find out why it was hard to get. But it simply wasn't an option. Not only is it difficult to get the fourth stomach of a cow in a place where it's not usually eaten, but offal itself isn't really high on many people's menus at home anymore. But for me, this is the most Florentine recipe I can think of. It's the thing that you can only get in Florence. It has a special link to the city. It tastes like the city. For me, it is the top Florentine food experience, and I knew I couldn't write a cookbook about Florence without having this recipe in it. I've heard of cookbook publishers not allowing recipes with ingredients that are hard to get, but I made this really clear when it was one of the 10 recipes I included in my pitch when I proposed this book to my publishers. In my book Tortelline at Midnight, there is a recipe for torta con i ciccioli. It's a sweet, dense cake made with lard and rendered pork fat. I know no one's going to bake this cake. They should, though. It is really delicious. It's too old-fashioned, and unfortunately, no one seems to want to bake with lard anymore. But this recipe, a lost family recipe, was recounted to me by my husband's uncle as a special memory of his nonna. And I went about cooking different cakes for him until we found something close. It became one of the must-have most treasured recipes for me in this book, not only for the emotional value, but because to me it shows exactly why telling a story can be such a vital aspect in preserving a recipe. I'd like to finish with this excerpt from Tortellini at Midnight for this recipe. I was dropping in on Marco's aunt and uncle, Franca and Ricardo, a few years ago. We let ourselves in through the gate, attempting not to let Asia, the giant Marema sheepdog, escape. And slipping into the house, where behind several piles of books, Ricardo was printing out a short story to share with me. It's about cake. He thought I would like it. It was a cake often made by Nonna Maria, a farmer's daughter from the countryside near Pisa, and a good baker. The cake pervades Ricardo's memory like a ghost. He remembers the smell, the taste, even the month of the year. She would make it in November, a month of cold, short, rainy days, during a festive season when the fair would come to town. He remembers it as una bomba, of calories that is, as it's a very dense, short cake, heavy with eggs and lard, Olive oil and butter were luxuries then. And it was eaten around the fire, one piece devoured after another. Ricardo had spent years searching for this recipe, based entirely on this memory of eating it when he was young. At first we thought it might be like a sort of Florentine schiacciata la Fiorentina, which is a fluffy yeasted cake, typical of Florence, but it was made exclusively during the carnival period in February. And already that made me raise some doubts. It's heady with the aromas of orange zest and vanilla, and it's enriched with lard. I made it for him to try, but it was too fluffy, too perfumed, too dainty with its veil of powdered sugar and cocoa powder to be the one. It's more rustic, Ricardo said, and more dense, much more dense, Franca piped up. They got married when they were 17. They've been together for over 60 years and have three great grandchildren. Even Franca remembers this cake. In fact, although it's Ricardo's memory, Franca is a great cook and she knows cakes, so I listened to her recollection of it too, and in particular to a detail that Ricardo doesn't mention. There were chicholi in it, she assures me, speaking of savory, crunchy porky bits that were scattered throughout the cake. Chicholi are these small dried pieces of fatty pork. They're cooked slowly until dry and all the fat has melted out of them. This part is then drained for making lard. They are at times spiced or salted, but at their simplest they're left plain and unseasoned. To the cake, they lend crunch. Similar to pork scratchings, they can be eaten as a rather addictive snack, but it's more traditionally found sprinkled through polenta, bread, or in this case cake. I didn't have to look very far for inspiration. Amongst the 790 entries, Pellegrino Artusi has a recipe in his 19th century cookbook for focaccia con ciccioli, which are ciccioli, spilt with an S. And although he calls it a focaccia, it's not actually a bread, but it's a sweet, very dense, flat cake. It's a country cake that has the comforting, satisfying quality worthy of cherishing as a memory for a lifetime.